I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. the unmistakable sound of the Thompson Twins, a band which featured Tom Bailey, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Tom Bailey. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in the 80s, you probably remember the Thompson Twins were everywhere. And if you're like me and you kept growing up a little bit more in the 90s, you probably remember the Thompson Twins were nowhere. Sure, You still heard Hold Me Now while you were buying hummus at Whole Foods, but aside from the old hits, not only was there nothing new from the band, they seemed to have dropped off the planet completely. And it probably seemed that way because it was true. With very little fanfare, the Thompson Twins, who were one of the most popular bands of the 80s, were gone. But, like most stories, it wasn't as simple as that. Let me explain. Our story begins in London in 1977, when the 21-year-old Yorkshire-born Tom Bailey teamed up with Pete Dodd, John Ruge, and John Podorsky to play bass and sing for a band called the Thompson Twins. The band took their name from the Tintin cartoon, which featured a hapless pair of bowler hat-wearing, mustachioed sleuths Thompson and Thompson. Squatting in London, the Thompson Twins had very little money and begged, borrowed, and stole to live, eat, and play music. Although the Thompson Twins found ways to get by, one thing they couldn't figure out was how to keep a drummer. Podorsky stepped out and was replaced by the Leeds-born Andrew Edge, who was then replaced by Chris Bell. No, not the guy from Big Star. In 1980, Bailey, Dodd, Ruge, and Bell which sounds like the name of a law firm, released their first single on their own label, Dirty Discs Records. The song was called Squares and Triangles, and later that year, it was followed by another single. This one was called She's in Love with Mystery, and it sounded a little something like this. Still cries in her sleep 
I know, I know. That sounds nothing like the polished, radio-ready pop of the Thompson Twins that sold millions of albums in the 80s. But, you know, to understand the Thompson Twins is to understand artistic evolution. What you just heard had more in common with angular guitar-driven post-punk than it did with pop music, sure. But the Thompson Twins' sound was changing. Another thing that was changing? Their lineup. In 1981, the band added former roadie Joe Leeway on congas and Jane Shorter on sax. I know what you're thinking. The song I just played for you would have been so much better with congas and a sax. But, odd of a choice as it may have seemed, keep those congas in the back of your mind. They come back later. The new six-person lineup put out the Thompson Twins' debut album, A Product of Participation. Interesting side note. Fellow artsy squatter and New Zealand native Alana Curry sang on that record, and for her efforts, she was uncredited, but on the back of the album, she did get thanked. Unfortunately, you can't put thanks in the bank. Oh, but don't worry about Alana Curry. She would do just fine. Boasting African rhythms and two ethnic traditionals, a product of participation was a confluence of post-punk and congas that could have fit comfortably between the Talking Heads and Public Image Limited. The album's rhythms were so infectious that a hallmark of Thompson Twins' gigs found audience members jumping on stage and improvising percussion with anything they brought along for the occasion. Things like hubcaps, pots, coffee cans, and sticks. You know, the things that you usually bring to concerts. For album number two, the Thompson Twins shed the sax playing shorter and replaced her with percussionist singer Alana Curry. They also added bassist Matthew Seligman, who had played with the Soft Boys. The band signed to Clive Davis's Arista Records, and Tom Bailey, who was now on keyboards, found himself sharing vocal duties with Leeway. The Thompson Twins released the album Set, which featured Thomas Dolby on some tracks, and Dolby even played a few live gigs with the band. The album spawned the dance floor hit In the Name of Love, which went straight to number one in the U.S. on the dance club charts. Now, as we all know, nothing makes things get sketchier than success. And this is the part of the story where the Thompson Twins get sketchy. With In the Name of Love at number one, the band decided to pair down to a trio of Bailey, Curry, and Leeway. But how were they going to break this news to their other bandmates? Well, very easy. They told them they were breaking up. The only problem? They weren't. I tried to get out of a relationship once when I was 19 the same way. I told the girl I was dating that I was moving. Bad idea. Let's save that for another podcast. Back to our story. The four ousted band members of the Thompson Twins were each given about 650 bucks, and they were permitted to keep their instruments with the understanding they would never again perform under the name The Thompson Twins. Nasty business. But that's a redundant phrase. The Thompson Twins trio took off to Egypt and the Bahamas, got creatively inspired, and decided the jittery post-punk of the past was in the past. It was over, and it was time to embrace a new sound that involved technology. 
In short, the Thompson twins wanted to see how technology would fare in a three-minute pop song. Well, it fared just fine. The band's third album, Sidekicks, had huge hits with Lies and Love on Your Side. The album hit number two in the UK, it broke in the US thanks to exposure on MTV, and the Thompson Twins opened for the police on their Synchronicity tour. Then came Into the Gap. This 1984 album was massive. It hit number one in the UK and number 10 in the US. It spawned five singles, including Hold Me Now, Doctor, Doctor, and The Gap. And it sold five million copies worldwide. The band was on an absurd roll. Thanks to hits like Lay Your Hands on Me and King for a Day, 1985's Here's to Future Days went top five in the UK and top 20 in the US. The band played Live Aid, worked with Nile Rodgers, and were joined on stage by Madonna. Not too shabby. I'll bet the former members of the Thompson Twins were at home watching Live Aid and going, well, at least we got to keep our instruments. But guess what the Thompson Twins still couldn't keep? Band members. Leeway took off in 86 and down to a duo, Curry and Bailey, who by that point had coupled up, released three more Thompson Twins albums, 1987's Close to the Bone, 1989's Big Trash, and 1991's Queer. Sonically, they were varied and interesting albums that fused techno and pop, but they didn't really trouble the charts. In 1988, Curry and Bailey had a kid. In 91, they got married, had another kid. And in 1992, they moved to New Zealand with their young family. Bailey and Curry recorded two albums as the band Babble. The band's sound was sort of like dub, chill, electro dance with a rhythmic center. You might remember those congas. And that was that. Curry gave up the music business for motherhood, glass casting, and environmental activism. The couple divorced in 2003, and both relocated back to the UK. Curry married Jimmy Cowdy of the KLF, and Bailey became a producer and a soundtrack arranger, operating under the moniker International Observer. It seemed like Tom Bailey was over pop music, and that was something that would stay in his past. But in 2014, he appeared at the Rewind South Festival, where he played Thompson Twins songs for the first time in 27 years. The pop bug had hit him again. And there's no doubt that Bailey, who, by the way, was the only member of the Thompson Twins to have classical musical training, is back. His first solo album, Science Fiction, came out this summer. And with tracks like Shooting Star and What Kind of World, it's a pop wonder that brings to mind everyone from Bowie to Avalon-era Roxy music. It's lush, it's dreamy, and it's catchy, and it offers Bailey's unique vision of the future. As for the musical future, Tom Bailey's back. He's back writing pop songs, and I couldn't be happier. He seems to be totally into it, rediscovering the muscle, as he says. I caught up with Tom Bailey while he was on tour with Culture Club and the B-52s. Here's our chat. It's a quick one, but it's an interesting one. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Uh, it's very noisy where I am. I hope it's uh, possible to hear me clearly. Yes, where are you exactly? Well, I'm backstage uh, at the gig in Cary, North Carolina, which is, uh, I, I guess, on the outskirts of Raleigh. 
Oh, okay. We're just uh, in the middle of sound checks and everything. How has the tour been going? Well, it's fantastic so far. We're, we're I guess, two weeks into a three-month haul, so um, it's not too early to say it's going well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I am very excited about your your new record, and I was I was kind of curious to know how you uh, approach songwriting now. It, is it different than the way you approached it years ago? Well, in a way, it has it has to be different because I'm kind of re-encountering those skills. I've I've still been making music all my life, you know, but I haven't really worked in mainstream pop music for a couple of decades. Uh, and they are particular disciplines involved in, in, in making pop music. And I was very clear that when, you know, as a result of deciding to play the uh, kind of retrospective show of the Thompson Twins hits, um, and that led to me thinking, well, in order to join the past with the present, I'm going to write some new pop songs. I, I was very clear that it was going to be exactly that, you know. It was going to be three-minute, foot-tapping, sing-along chorus-type songs, not informed by, but not the same as all the other music that I make, the Indian stuff and the and the dub and the you know electronic stuff. So it was a very, very kind of a definite decision to get back into the pop music saddle. Um, and so in that sense, it's the same as it always was, you know. I wonder what it's like for you playing the old songs when you are, I mean, artistically, you must be more interested in the new stuff. Uh, yeah, well, it's a great pleasure in playing the old songs if they bring back good memories and there's the opportunity to contemporize them somehow. I think that's the thing. Um, luckily, I kind of, the songs I've chosen to sing from the past, I enjoy. So there's, there's nothing that I feel is just a chore. You know, I mean, I can understand that that might be the case for some people, but um, I, I like doing them all. Did you find that as a young man, you had a real facility for writing those those three-minute pop songs you're talking about? So it's almost like going back and looking at snapshots of yourself and saying, oh, I, I, I had some style. I knew what I was doing back then. Were you surprised that when you go back and, and listen to that stuff or play that stuff, um, how sophisticated of a, of a writer you were so early on in your career? Hmm. I'd never really thought of it that way, to be honest. I mean, the thing is, writing pop music for me at that time was in itself an experiment. You know, the, the Thompsons were always uh, looking for the creative challenge that took them elsewhere. And at one stage, we thought, hey, let's try being a pop group. You know? Right. <laughs> it, was, it was really a kind of innocent thing, and therefore we kind of learned how to do it. But it was also very liberating because at that point, we decided not to be confined by the, by the instruments that we happened to play. So suddenly the arrival of synthesizers and drum machines just kind of broke the whole thing wide open. And if, you know, we became the designers of a pop experience rather than a bunch of instrumentalists who happened to be in a band. And, and that was the kind of, the, that was the, the really important psychological change for us. But I imagine your record collection in, in 1979 was not pop music. That's right. Uh, it was all sorts of strange things. And it was very, very non-mainstream, in fact, uh, um, but highly influenced by the, the musical environment that I lived in, which had been classical. But I was in South London, so I had a lot of 
dub reggae. I was already fascinated by Indian music. Um, and we've been through the whole punk and new wave thing. So uh, it, there was an awful lot of uh, kind of disparate influences all trying to find a home in what we did. Do you think the, the three minutes pop song is there's something confining about it artistically, or do you think there is room to almost reinvent the paradigm? Well, I think it's one of those beautiful things that by happenstance has evolved. I mean, a bit like a haiku or a sonnet, you know, it, it's, it's very specific in its requirements, but it seems to be open to all sorts of interpretation and reimaginings. So I think it's well worth guarding as a very precious item in, 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 in a kind of cultural treasure. When you started writing the songs for the new album, and did you find that it was a muscle that you could just that you could flex easily again, or did it did it take you a little bit of time to sort of go, oh yeah, this is how I did it? I I did have to rediscover it, but it was like an old friend, you know. You you, you realize, hey, I remember this, uh, and I remember that we had to acquire those skills. It was it's, you know it's not something that you're just born with. You have to figure out how to get to the first chorus in under a minute. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I remember having done the hard yards and then I just kind of re re-engaged with it. And it is a fantastic skill to, to have worked on in the past. And so I'm pleased to be using it again.
love about this record is it's really kind of thematically you're you're certainly grappling with something very specific um can you tell me a bit about how these songs came together and why you chose thematically to go the direction that you did well i think two or three songs in i realized that there was an awful lot of kind of cosmological stargazing uh imagery coming through uh and then at that point i wrote the song science fiction which is in fact more of a relationship song, but I thought the title was really a good one for the album as a whole. Uh, and from that point onwards, most of the songs just fitted into that. And the thing I really like about science fiction as an idea, as a concept, is that it, it, it's a little bit smoke and mirrors because it seems to be about the future, but of course it's just really a way of examining the present. You know, and it, it's using our imagination of how things could be in order to cast light on how things really are now. And that to me is a kind of powerful conceit, if you like. Um, uh, and it certainly gave me a lot of material for the 10 songs on the record. Do you think that being said, do you think the record is one that is optimistic? Uh, yes. Um, not without a certain amount of difficult realism thrown in but for me an optimism about the future is a necessary part of what i do you know that it can't be liberational if it's cynical it can't be liberational if it's simply vacuous and you know if there's one thing that gets me kind of worked up <laughs> and argumentative these days about the music business it's this idea that somehow the rebellious responsibility of rock and roll and and pop music which is really just i think the cute cousin of of rock and roll um is that that we are losing 
this rebelliousness because it's been kind of corporately tamed. It's been captured. Right. <laughs> and now, and now, you know, groups are made by marketing committees and songs are written by six different experts. And it, it, it's no longer the kind of fist waving rebellious call to arms that it used to be. And so if I believe that music has this power to bring people together in order to make the world a better place, and I do believe that, then I'm always looking for that note of optimism that we seem to have lost. And I'm lucky because I've got one foot in the past, you know, so I can remember that and I can re-evoke it with my audience. But when you're starting out, if I was 18 years old now, I wouldn't have that sense of it being a very clear direction that you have to go in with. You know, the, the reason for making music is to make the world a better place rather than just to seek fame and fortune, which is a kind of empty gesture to me. Now, pop music has always had a sort of business-like quality, even if you look at like the Brill Building uh, of the 60s. Oh, it was sure. like, right, like, let's go to work and write pop songs. <laughs> and so, um, right. You know, well, nothing, nothing wrong with that. No. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's a fantastic way. And I said, no, that's the way I work. I get up in the morning and I put some hours in. Uh, because without doing that, nothing happens. Um, but what I'm saying is that the motivation that lies behind that should be liberational, not just money-making. And do you think that there's a difference then between cynicism and rebelliousness? They can overlap, but cynicism on its own doesn't do it for me. I totally get that. And so something like the Sex Pistols, which sort of uh, that kind of rebellion – um, which was also cynical because I think, you know, Johnny Rotten was doing a bit. Um, there's a good example of how it worked. Yeah, totally. They're, they were almost symbolizing in its most refined form, the kind of the shriek of rebellion and the fist waving symbol of refusing to accept the deal that, the, that our parents generation handed down to us. You know, which is the job of the rebellious teenager. So I imagine punk. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So I imagine punk rock probably had a great appeal for you then. It did in its spirit, and it did in its democratization of the process. The music for me was, for in most cases, forgettable. Uh, I didn't learn anything from that, apart from just the kind of snotty-nosed insistence that we're going to do it. For me, the big thing was that suddenly anyone can have a go. And so it brought about this much broader democratic access to to the chance of making a hit record and communicating en masse. I think immediately prior to that, it was like only millionaires need apply. Right. <laughs> it was a closed shop. And I wonder if if the the maybe the the appeal didn't really it didn't really hit you artistically because it seemed like it it couldn't last. In other words, that that moment like the Sex Pistols weren't weren't going to be a band like Chicago. They weren't going to put out 20, 20 records. That wasn't going to happen. For me, the Sex Pistols were perhaps a little bit too top heavy in the symbolism of rebellion and not enough content in the. And I mean, there were a couple of great songs uh, and a lot of noise. So. That was a sign that it wasn't going to last, perhaps. Also, it was too incendiary. You know, the people involved weren't centered enough to hold it together. And so we had, you know, people falling off the wagon left, right and center. And uh, 
making a mess of their lives in order to try and keep it together. And that's a you know, I don't think people should sacrifice their health and, and, and well-being, and certainly their kind of spiritual well-being in pursuit of uh, fame. It's not, it's, not the, it's not a good deal. Can you talk a bit about your relationship with fame? Because it seemed like you knew when to back away. Um, I think I once, 20 years ago, I referred to you as the J.D. Salinger of New Wave. I was trying to be clever. Um, but I, but I, liked, <laughs> I, I liked the idea that you knew to step away. It seemed like, uh, you know, part of it seemed like self-preservation. I'm talking about from the pop paradigm. Um, and it was a very conscious decision, right. and 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 it seemed like a very smart one for you, and very specific. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of leaving that sort of uh, your relationship with fame, and and kind of deciding to sort of you know stay away from it after a while? I I think for all sorts of reasons, it was partly a survival mechanism uh, because you know the party has to stop at some point, uh, and and rather you be one of the corpses that they find when they clean up the party. <laughs> <laughs> I decided I'd rather be one of the guys who made it home. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, now, you know, some people think that that's kind of selfish and not in the spirit of rock and roll, but to me it seemed like a fairly obviously sensible thing to do. The other thing is I had an awful lot of other interests that had been pushed to one side by the success of the Twins. So I wanted to go ahead and make Indian music and dub music and blah, blah. I also wanted to raise a family and I didn't want to be feeding kids backstage at concerts all the time. And so um, it, was a, it was a very clear decision for me. The other thing is, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Sober, okay, which is a little bit boring again. But <laughs> uh, I went through the whole thing, uh, essentially no drink and no drugs which uh, puts me in a very select club of about three people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, for me, I was never really so caught up in it that I couldn't just walk away. Well, there are bands like the Sundays or Talk Talk who made the conscious decision to go raise families and to leave. Right. That. And, and to me, that indicates, and you're in there as well, that you had perspective. And sometimes when you're throwing the party or you're the guy at the party, it's hard to to have that perspective of, I'm going to have to leave this or dismantle this. So the fact that you had that vision and that clarity at such a young age is is commendable and you know, you, you probably saved yourself in the process. Well, who knows? Who knows? I mean, we were that young either, because, you know, uh, I guess I was into my mid-30s when we got to that point. So, uh, it, it, come on, we have to have some common sense, <laughs> even at a young age. It surprises, you know, it's, it's sad when you see people crash land in those kind of circumstances. Uh, through want of a little bit of just seeing it coming, you know. Uh, so there you go. Maybe well, the, we were lucky. There you go. Yeah. Well, it, you know, good for you for having that perspective. And and also in terms of the optimism of the future, Tom, you've put out. You know, this record is is a whole batch of new songs. Do you see yourself continuing on? Is there more to say? Do you do you feel like oh, I want to flex this muscle uh, a, a a few more times? Oh, for sure. You know, I wake up every morning and want to make music. That's never changed. The whole pop song thing took a while to kind of deal with my own denial about that, I think. And then now that I've opened the door, it would seem stupid to, to slam it closed again. 
but let's see. I'm not making any promises, but uh, I, I actually have been writing new songs since the album was finished. So let's see. Well, you know what? It's great to have you back, and uh, you know it's it's a remarkable album, and, and I'm excited that you're uh, that you've returned to the ring. You're very kind. I'm excited too. Tom Bailey is back. How can you not be excited about that? For more information about Tom Bailey, his tour, his music, all that stuff, thompsontwinstombailey.co.uk. That will get the job done. If you want to subscribe to Bombshell Radio, please go get the job done for us on iTunes. And please, while you're there, subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast. We would appreciate it, and we would appreciate it even more if you leave us a review, a rating, maybe a plate of warm cookies, whatever's in your heart. Uh, if there's a guest you want me to track down, if you want me to uh, chase somebody with a microphone, leave me a message, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com or on Twitter at Embers Editor, and I will do my very best. All right? Okay. All right, let's end the show with another new song from Tom Bailey's new album, Science Fiction. This is What Kind of World. Enjoy it right here, and I'll see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Stereo Embers.